your seats as you do that. If you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we are continuing on in our series uh, entitled This is the Church, where we're just taking a look at ecclesiology, uh, what it is that makes the church a church, what are the, responsibility for the responsibilities for those in the church, what is it that makes this thing what it is. And so we're just kind of tracking through, and we, we talked a little bit in the first week about the church in crisis, and we, we looked last week at the fact that Jesus is in charge of the church, that the church is ruled by Christ. He is supreme not only in creation, but he is supreme in the church as well. And so this week and, and next week, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to take a look at, at what it means to be a pastor. Uh, remember I mentioned that we're just kind of tracking through even what's laid out kind of our core beliefs in our constitution that we believe that we are a church uh, that is Jesus Christ ruled and that's elder-led uh, or pastor-led. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks just kind of looking at the pastor. And I'm just going to say this at the front end. You do with it what you want. There are some uh, passages that, that lend themselves a little bit more to more preaching, a little bit more uh, exciting and, 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 you know, might, might make you want to shout a little bit. You never know. Uh, this ain't one of them. Uh, so, so we're going to work through the qualifications. But I do want to stress this. They are very significant. It is very important to understand the calling and the expectations for those who would stand in the pulpit and serve as under-shepherds under the chief shepherd. Uh, and so I'm not giving you license to tune out. Who knows? You might, you might shout in this one. Uh, you never know what God's going to do. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we read our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to beginning there in verse 1 and reading through verse 7. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, but not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders. So he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. And this, this morning, I want us to just consider this idea of the right man for the job. The right man for the job. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word, I pray that, that it would spring forth from these pages of fresh and anew. And that we would be reminded that this is you speaking to us. And so we better pay attention. God, I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to teach your word to your people. We are ready. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, I, in preparing for this message, I read uh, an interesting statistic this week. And the st statistic claims that the average man, the average man will only, will, I'm sorry, will apply for a job if they meet only 60% of the qualifications. The average man, if they're looking on the internet, they see a job, they'll apply for it if they meet roughly 60% of the qualifications. Now, women, on the other hand, will only apply for a job, on average, 
if they meet 100% of the qualifications. If they meet everything that's written on the page. But what's interesting though, is there's a growing push right now, it's really surprising, for people, both men and women, to apply for jobs that they're not qualified for. To apply for jobs they're not qualified for. If you go on the internet when you go home, don't do it now, pay attention, but if you, if you get on the internet when you get home and just Google, get a job you're unqualified for, you will have page after page after page of techniques and strategies and success stories from people who applied for jobs they weren't qualified for. They got the job, they got a bigger salary and a signing bonus, it was worth it. In fact, one website I read wants to help you get a job that you are completely unqualified for with five easy steps. Here they are, I'm gonna help somebody this morning, okay? Number one, focus on what you do have to offer. Doesn't matter if you don't have what they want. Focus on what you do have to offer. Number two, use your cover letter to make the case for why you're a good fit. Because the resume won't say it, so use the cover letter. Number three, these are real. These are on the website. I even footnoted them, in case you don't believe me. Number three, start learning some of the skills <laughs> required for the job before you interview. So in other words, learn enough about the job to convince the people you're talking to that you know what you're doing even though you have no idea. Number four, get someone to vouch for you. So don't just put your career on the line. Put somebody else's career on the line as well. And number five, emphasize that you're excited about the opportunity. You do those five things, you can get a job you're unqualified for. But what's been interesting is the general tone of the lot of a lot of the articles I read, and I fell down this this rabbit. I went deep down this rabbit hole of getting a job you're unqualified for. I even tried it because you know Chris tech, uh, put tweeted out that he needed a, a web developer. I have no idea what that is, but I even sent back on on Twitter, "Hey, I'm gay. You want to hire me?" Uh, fortunately, he wasn't going to hire someone who was unqualified for. But but the general tone of these articles was you should go for a job that you aren't qualified for, and there's some reasons for it, because it might provide you with a new opportunity, or you might get a signing bonus that even though you might not make it a year, you'll at least get the signing bonus, and it'll look good on your resume to say that you work for this company even though you weren't qualified for it. But the more I looked at these articles, the more I realized that they had one thing in common. They were only written from the perspective of the individual. And I found myself asking, I wonder if the companies themselves have something to say about hiring unqualified people. I wonder if employers have any thoughts on unqualified people applying to the position. Sure enough, they did. You can find anything on the internet. Employers, there are probably an equal amount of pages devoted to employers warning other employers of what to look out for and how to avoid hiring unqualified people. And they warn that hiring unqualified people can cause three major problems. The first, the loss of company morale. Basically, what they're arguing is that if you hire unqualified people, the people that are qualified are going to have to shoulder more of that workload to make up for what you can't do, and that will lower morale. Second reason they give is financial loss. One study showed that the average mid-range company 
loses because of unqualified workers an average of $25,000 a year. That's just a mid-range company. Because they hired unqualified people, they gave them a signing bonus, they paid a salary, and they ended up having to let them go because they weren't qualified for the job. The last reason was a damaged reputation. If you hire unqualified people for your company, you won't, you won't produce quality work. You won't produce quality products, and then the society that's looking at your company will stop seeing you as a top-tier company. And so this got me thinking. If this is true in the business world, how much more is this true in the church? To place unqualified people in positions which demand specific qualifications, qualifications required by the one establishing the position. In this case, that's God. Specifically, as we're talking about the role of pastor, if we place unqualified people in positions which demand specific qualifications, it can have devastating consequences. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may be in 10 years' time, but unqualified people will cause immense damage in the church. And unfortunately for so many churches, they don't evaluate the qualifications until after the damage has been done. There are stories of fall after fall of pastors and mega churches. I read one last night, the pastor having an affair and trying to hide it. He's still at the church. And it's sad because most people, once that happens, can look back and say, they weren't qualified there, they weren't qualified there, they weren't qualified there, but the damage has already been done. And that is why in the word of God, God himself lays out the qualifications for those who serve as pastors in the church. The role of pastor is not designed by men. It's designed by God. And it ultimately should be filled by God's leading. And so in our passage this morning, God gives the qualifications of a pastor to help us understand who it is we should affirm and who it is that we should submit to as they serve as pastors in a given local church. Now, I want to offer this warning here at the very beginning. Uh, as I work through this text, I want to caution you because it's often easy to think that these passages describing a specific role doesn't apply to people outside of that role. Like for me, this, this, this week, like beat me up as a pastor. Because it's all the areas where I have to be holy and where I have to seek after God's face. And, and the Holy Spirit used that to point out areas where I need to grow. So for me, it's, it's extremely applicable. But you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not you. I'm not in that role. So you might be thinking, well, because it's about elders, I, I can just check out a little bit. But I just want to warn you that that's probably not the wisest decision. And let me offer up just three reasons here at the beginning why this topic is extremely important for every member of the church, even those who will never be a pastor. Here's the first reason. This passage reminds us that Jesus loves his church intimately, and therefore we should too. Ephesians 5 reminds us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus cares deeply about the holiness of the church, so much so that he details the qualifications needed for a man to shepherd the bride he loves. And these aren't easy qualifications. 
We know that no person is perfect. No person is worthy in themselves of the honor of being a pastor. But we also don't downplay the seriousness of the role. We can't eliminate or soften any of the qualifications of being a pastor. Why? Because Jesus cared so much about the church that he gave his life for. But the second reason this is important is because individuals in the church, that's you, let me just make it personal, you as members, you're held accountable by God to the, for the people that you willingly submit to. If you as a congregation affirm individuals who will lead you astray, who are not qualified, not only will that pastor be held accountable, and they will be held accountable, but so will you. Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31 teach us that it says, An appalling, horrible thing has taken place in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own authority. Now listen to this. He says, My people love it like this. But what will they do at the end of it? And that's God warning that the people might like the person. They might enjoy the false teaching. They might enjoy being led astray. But there will come an end. And we will stand before God and give an account. And so you are held accountable just as much as the pastor is held accountable. That's not fair. Not as much as the pastor. It's a different accountability. I almost undid my sermon next week. But here's the final reason and we'll move on. I think three will do for now. There are more reasons why this text matters to you. But for now, let me say the qualifications for an elder minus one of them, which I'll point out are marks of godliness in every member. I mean, think about it. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the expectation is that, that, that the men who are serving in pastoral roles will be examples to the flock of what Jesus looks like. It doesn't mean we are Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I will stumble and I will fall. But part of my responsibility is to imitate for you a pattern of life worth following, which means these qualifications are qualifications you should be wanting to see develop in yourself as well. So, this is my challenge as we walk through this list of qualifications. I want to encourage you to pay attention because it doesn't just matter for pastors, but it matters for you as well. Now, before we dive into our text, we're doing a little bit of front work. We have to ask a very important question. A question that we may assume the answer to but maybe we've never really sat and thought about it. Here's the question. What is a pastor? What is a pastor? I think often we can describe a pastor by what they do. But what, what is a pastor? So let's start with terminology. Often in the Bible, the words for elder and pastor are used interchangeably. They, they come from the same Greek word, poimen. They're not distinct roles. An elder is not different from a pastor, and a pastor is not different from an overseer. They are, they are three English words that, that are used to communicate the same Greek word. And the word poimen is literally a shepherd. A shepherd who oversees a flock. And Jeremy Ryan writes in his helpful little book, Church Elders, he says this. He says, biblically speaking, elders are pastors who are overseers. Elders are pastors who are overseers. We could say that pastors are under shepherds. 
Meaning, as 1 Peter 5 teaches, they serve under the chief shepherd. That's an actual role for shepherds. There's normally one shepherd who's the head shepherd, and then under them are what they call under-shepherds. And 1 Peter 5 communicates that Jesus is the chief shepherd. We talked about that last week. And, and pastors serve as under-shepherds. They represent the chief shepherd among the flock because the chief shepherd can't, can't manage all of the sheep. That's where the analogy breaks down for us because Jesus can but, but under-shepherds are meant to, to, to oversee, to shepherd a particular group of the flock. So here's, here's what we're going to use as our succinct definition. We're going to use this over the next couple weeks. So point men, which is pastors, overseers, elders, are individuals set apart by God to oversee the flock of God in, in, in a specific location. So elders, pastors, overseers, point men, they're individuals set apart by God to oversee the flock of God in a specific location. So what we're going to look at this morning is the first part of that definition. We'll pick up on the second part next week. So we're looking at the, that they are individuals set apart by God. They're individuals set apart by God. And so what Paul writes to Timothy are the qualifications of these individuals. What is it that sets them apart? And again, remember what we talked about earlier. Even if you're not an elder, these all matter to you. And I'm hoping to, to try to apply these to you as well as we work through it. So going back to that book I mentioned, Church Elders by, by Jeremy Ryan, he breaks down the qualifications of elders into six categories. And so I'm just going to use his six categories this morning and to try to walk through briefly what it is that qualifies men to be pastors in the church. So here's the first qualification. It's a desire. The first qualification is the desire. Look, look back at verse 1. It says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, here it is, he desires a noble work. Now this is often an overlooked qualification. Oftentimes individuals, they skip this one and they move on right to the list, right, of, of what we would say those kind of godly characteristics. But we can't neglect this. For a pastor to be qualified, it begins with a desire for the task of eldership. Now, there are two, two specific aspects to this desire. First, a man must desire the role itself. Please hear me. Just because you meet all the other qualifications, it doesn't mean you should be an elder. There are times when the season is just not right. There are times when it would cost you to sacrifice in areas where it would make you unfaithful, where it's not wise to do so, because these men who serve as pastors do have other responsibilities in their life. Anyone considering the role has other responsibilities in their life to which they have to be faithful. We'll see some of those as we work through these qualifications. You know, part of my role as a lead pastor is to develop more leaders. It's, it's in my job description that y'all voted on. You might not remember. That's part, of, that's part of my responsibility. And what makes, what makes that somewhat difficult is because all of the other qualifications that we're going to talk about except for desire are observable. Meaning that I can just look at men in the church and observe a lot of these qualifications. But the desire is a tough one because it actually has to be expressed. And there have been times, some men in this church who are sitting here right now can attest to this. There have been times when I've gone to individuals because of the observable qualifications, they meet all of them. And I'm saying, hey, 
Let me walk with you. Let's, let's potentially bring you in as a pastor of new breed. And, and they responded kindly and in love. Man, thank you for that. But I don't desire the work. At that point, the conversation's done. It's done. Because there has to be a real desire. I respect when people tell me that. Because a guaranteed way to have a frustrated pastor and a frustrated church is to make someone a pastor who doesn't want to be a pastor. We have to remember, and this applies to you as well, God gives us all desires to be used for his glory. Some of you sitting right here have a desire for organization. You should serve in church administration. Some of you have a desire to see children flourish in their faith. You should serve in every kids. Some of you have a desire for intimate relationships with people, so you, you thrive in discipleship relationships. God gives us all desires, and desires are meant to be used for the glory of God. And we want to try to identify what those desires are and use them to serve not only those outside of the church, but those within the church, and to bring God glory. Now, I have to have a word of caution here. There's not necessarily a one-to-one -one comparison, because for the pastor, a lack of a desire removes a qualification for him being an elder. There will be times, though, in the church where you will need to serve in areas where you don't have a desire for. Just be honest. None of us, I think, I know most of you really well, have the desire to clean toilets. But sometimes we don't have to clean a toilet. Right? Sometimes in the church we're going to have to serve in areas that don't line up with our desires. It doesn't mean we ignore our desires, but we want to we want to evaluate and examine the desires that God has given us and think, how is this gift or this passion that God has given me, how can it be used for the glory of God in the church? But for a pastor, it is required that they have a desire. But second, not only must he desire the role, he must desire the work. Notice what it says at the end of verse 1. He desires a noble work. Not he desires a noble position. Not he desires a noble title. He desires a noble work. A pastor must desire the duties to lead, to teach, to shepherd, to equip, to be accountable for and to the church. And we'll dive into what that looks like a little bit more next week. But what I want to say is this. Notability is not found, or I'm sorry, nobility is not found in the title. It's found in the work. And there have been men who want to be pastors because they want the recognition that comes with the title. But what God is trying to communicate to us is that nobility is not found in the title. Nobility is found in the work. But this actually teaches us something. It teaches us and helps us understand that in Jesus' church, the emphasis is not on the pastor, but on the people. Because the work is to serve the people of God. And y'all have seen it too. You know some of those churches, and we're not going to name names. We're not going to name names. Where the church centers around the pastor. The church is known because of who the pastor is, what the pastor says, what the pastor does. Did you hear what this guy did this week or this week? And what, what God is trying to teach us is that it's not about the pastor, it's ultimately about the sheep. Side note, the pastor is privileged to be counted among the sheep. The emphasis is not on the title, it's on the work. James 3.1 warns us of the weight of stepping into the role that we don't desire, we don't want. 
Or maybe we do, but we're not ready. And James 3, 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that you will receive a stricter judgment. I've I, I got a lot to get into, so I'm going to have to move quick through this, but let me just say that I understand the weight of standing in this place every Sunday. Y'all don't always see the internal turmoil I go through. This is going to be most encouraging. This, that, yeah, as we as we as pastors prep to do this, but we understand, your pastors understand the weight of the role that we have. We, we try not to ever take it lightly, but I know for me, when it comes to desire, I try to think of other things that I could do and be happy with. I have. Just be honest. Sometimes I have weak moments. I'm like, what if I wasn't a pastor? But by God's grace, I always come back to the place that there is nothing else I would ever want to do. That God has hardwired in me a desire to do this work. Some of y'all know it's not always glamorous, not always glorious, but it's noble. Here's the second qualification. Second qualification that Paul writes to Timothy is godly character. Godly character. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. I'm sorry I forgot to put these on the screen, but it says. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He has to have a godly character. So, so, so let's run through some of these, these quickly because these are important. And so he says above reproach. Now, now I've got to pause here to share something interesting with you, and this will help us understand how we evaluate these characteristics. It's actually very important. Uh, all of these verbs that are used in this section in the original Greek language, all of these things that speak to godly character, be above reproach, be a husband of one wife, have a good reputation, all of these verbs are written in the present tense. Now, here's why I say that. If you look at any Christian's past, not a one of us is above reproach. We were all in seasons of rebellion before knowing Christ. We've all sinned since knowing Christ. Pastors' testimonies, like anyone else's testimony, are messy. And the same grace of God is needed for them. Some of y'all know my story. It wasn't a pretty past. But what Paul is getting at here as he writes these things in a, in a verb tense that's present is he's saying that when the Bible calls a pastor, say, above reproach, it's speaking of his current standing. When you examine the life of that person now, in this season, are they above reproach? Are they individuals who you can look at and say, there's no glaring sin that we are aware of that needs to be dealt with? And again, this is not saying that pastors are perfect. It's not calling them to be perfect, but it is calling them to have, in some regards, killed habitual sin that would call their message and their ministry into question. Again, we all have a past. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But being above reproach does not look all the way back at every shortcoming. It examines a person's current state. Now, again, I've got to put a disclaimer here. This does not mean, and I'm not going to dive too deep into it now, this does not mean that there are not areas of struggle in the past that would permanently disqualify someone from being a pastor, because there are. There are particular sins, and if you want to work through what do I think some of those are, we can get into that. But I do believe there are particular sins that for the health of a church, for the testimony and witness of a church, will permanently disqualify a person from serving in eldership. 
But he goes on, he talks about a husband to one wife. Now again, there's much discussion about this statement. Some have took it to mean that it means that a man can have never been divorced from his wife. And many hold to that conviction, and I respect them, but I don't, I don't take it to mean that, and I want to tell you why. There are two reasons why I don't believe that the husband of one wife means that a man could have never been divorced in his past. The first reason is quite simple. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say he can't have been divorced. Divorce has never been a topic in the Bible that God nor Jesus nor the disciples spoke cryptically about. Ever. When they spoke about divorce, they were clear about divorce. But the second reason that I don't think it means divorce is because not all divorce is seen as sin in the Bible. It's not seen as sin. There are, there are allowances for what the Bible considers justifiable divorces. And to say that a man is disqualified for having a divorce would mean that you're saying that a man is disqualified for having not sinned. And, and so I don't think that it, it means that. But I also, if I was going to add a third reason, part of the reason I don't think it's speaking about just divorce is because it needs to say something about a person who's single as well. Because pastors can be single men. So is this a section that's just for a married person? Well, well what I believe that Paul is, is referring to when he says the husband of one wife is a man who has eyes for his wife only. A man guarded against idolatry and lust. And in some regards, I actually think that this understanding is a tougher one and more helpful because it speaks to those who are single and considering pastoral ministry. You need to be holy when it comes to sexuality. Men who are to be pastors are men who must not be swayed by sexual temptation. And again, I think this goes even deeper than just having an affair. I'm under the belief. And I'll say this candidly to you as a church, so you know part of my evaluation process when I evaluate other men. I believe that a man who struggles habitually with pornography is not qualified to be a pastor. I think that if a pastor who is an established pastor begins to struggle with habitual pornography, I think they have disqualified themselves, not permanently, but disqualified themselves from being a pastor. Because one thing that God takes extremely serious when it comes to men who will lead the church is sexual purity. I have to say more. I got to move on. He lists in self-controlled, sensible, and respectable. And it's interesting because I think that these are somewhat parallel. They're divided by the able to teach, but they're parallel with the not excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle and not quarrelsome. So self-controlled is kind of paired with not being an excessive drinker, and sensible is paired with not being a bully, but gentle and, and not quarrelsome. And then respectable is paired with not being greedy or hungry for money. Basically, what Paul is getting at is this is this is a person who conducts himself with decency who is careful to control the way they live, being very cautious as to, how, as to how they walk and present themselves. In essence, it's Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so what Paul is getting at here is, is the, the day in and day out grind of life. Is this person a person who is easily angered by little things? Do they constantly make foolish decisions or are they sensible? Are they regarded as a respectable person, one who shows respect? Are they controlled by something other than the spirit? Do they struggle with patterns of addiction, whether that be sexual addiction or addiction to alcohol or addiction to gambling, you know, fill in the blank? Or are they controlled by the spirit? Are they gentle? Are these people who are always looking for a fight, both theological and physical? Are they always trying to fight somebody now? 
we need to be cautious of this one. I'm going to be honest, this categorizes most of American Christianity right now. There are some people who don't know how to do Christianity without being in a theological fight. And based on this, that's a problem, especially if they bear the title pastor. I'm going to throw this out there. I think the areas of self-control, sensibility, respectability, not a bully, not hungry for money, I think they've disqualified many, and you can look on their Twitter status alone and see that. The mark of a pastor is not a person who is aggressive. He is not demeaning. He does not care only about himself and his gain. But he is gentle and kind and direct. And we'll see it a little bit next week. Yes, pastors contend for the truth. They fight. They fight falsehoods and false ideas. They carry out strongholds, but they do it with love and respect. But this should also challenge each and every one of us. How do you deal with people you disagree with? How do you treat people who have differing opinions, both inside and outside the church? Let's go even deeper than how do you deal with them. How do you feel about them? Not necessarily the things you say in public, but when they come to mind, when you think about what they've done or said in the past, what, what is it that kind of wells up inside of you? Right? We all want to develop these godly characteristics, but the man who would lead the church has to have gained some sort of mastery over these things through the power of the Spirit. But I want to also mention hospitable. And this point is actually very significant for all the others. Why of all things? I've had, I found myself asking this. Why of all the things that he could have listed to reflect godly character, does he pick hospitality? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. First... Hospitality is a way to be seen by others. How do we know if a person has these qualities? Well, because they're on display. And one of the ways that a pastor can display them is by being hospitable to the sheep, inviting them into their homes, spending time with them. And listen, even as our church grows, it doesn't mean we as pastors can have you over every week. It might not even be every month because we're trying to do this with a lot of people. But the pastor who's never around the sheep, let me just say it another way, and not to try to degrade you. The pastor who doesn't smell like the sheep isn't ready to shepherd them. But the second reason is that hospitality reveals a real love for people. What Paul is getting at is that a shepherd has to love the sheep. Now hear me, because this is a warning to all of us. It's one thing to love ministry. It's one thing to love a specific ministry. It's another thing to actually love the people. And I think many who take on the role of pastor are soon discovered to be those who love ministry more than they love people. And I'll be honest, this was an area the Lord had to humble me early on in ministry. Because I thought I loved people a lot. But I really just liked doing ministry. Like part of having the desire to preach, like I like to preach. I like staring at a computer screen with commentaries open to write these things. Like for me, that's life-giving. And I don't think pastor has to hate those things. But they have to love the people more. But again, hear me. This is not just a problem for pastors. It's a problem for everyone. It is easy to come into a church and fall in love with the vision of the church fall in love with the mission of the church, to fall in love with the look of the church or the feel of the church, to fall in love with the pastor of the church, and completely ignore the people who are in the church. One thing that drives me crazy, I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody, might be some of you, but when I ask people both in our church and other churches, what is it that you love about your church? 
very rarely is it the people that comes first. I love the preaching. Well, that's good. Preaching's good. I love what the church is about. That's good. But do you love the people? You know, one thing that I've encountered a lot, I'm going to dive into this. I'm sure. Got to just not. I'm not going to worry about time, okay? I'm not worried about time. We got a lot. God's word. I'm not going to worry about it. Suck it up, buttercup. All right. One of the things that I experience a lot as a pastor is people call me who are coming to a particular seminary. I won't tell you which seminary. It's only two. You can imagine which one's called me. Um, and they say, hey, I'm thinking about joining this church or that church. I'm thinking about joining your church. I've never met the person. But they'll say, can you, can you tell me if you think that's a good church? And so I knew response like, what is it that makes you do It's happened here at Newbury. And maybe I just run people off because they don't normally come after I do this. But I say, what is it about the church that drew you here? I mean, they're ready to sign membership before I can ever step foot in the door. And they said, well, we just, we really appreciated your preaching. Or I've heard before, it's like, you just style on Sunday mornings and, and the worship and the music. And, and I always push back on them. And I say, don't forget, though, like, I don't know if this is the right church for you. Because you're not covenanting with me alone. You're not covenanting with the worship team alone and the songs. You're covenanting with the people. And you need to meet the people in this body. Because they're the ones who are going to hold you accountable. They're the ones you're going to hold accountable. They're the ones you have to live in fellowship with. Like, we can't judge churches based off of what we see on the internet or, or listen to on Spotify through their sermons. Now, we should care about those things. But ultimately, we have to love the people. And, and what Paul's getting is that the hospitality of a pastor will show whether or not he loves the people. But this isn't just for the pastor. This is the call for each and every one of us. 1 Peter 4, 9 and 10. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of God's very grace. We are called to love people. Here's the next qualification. The next qualification is that a person has to be able to teach. They can teach. I mean, we see this there at the end at the end of verse 2, where it says, An overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Teaching, and we'll see it more next week, is fundamental to what it means to be a pastor. Ephesians 4.11 reveals that the purpose, Ephesians 4.11 tells us that God gave, gave prophets uh, and apostles and evangelists, and he says, and, and pastors and teachers. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's really interesting when you look at that in the original language. The, the, the pastors and the teachers say, uh, share the same article in the Greek. Meaning those aren't two separate things. The pastor and the teacher is the same person. He links them together. And the purpose of teaching is to edify, to grow, and strengthen the body. Now there's two things I want to note about teaching when we're evaluating them for whether or not they can teach. First, we have to remember there are different avenues of teaching. Not every pastor has to be able to stand in a pulpit and teach and, and deliver a sermon week after week after week. That's not the only area of teaching. Some pastors may only teach in small group settings. But can they teach? Some might only teach in discipleship relationships. But can they teach? There are different ways that teaching can take place. Normally, we think first of this. But I would say some of the more meaningful ones can be if you sat with the person when they're when you're in the midst of struggle and they can open the word of God to you and teach how God's word affects your situation right now in, in the moment. And that's teaching. 
Yes, do we want them to be able to teach sermons? Absolutely. That's a big part of what we do. But teaching can take on different avenues. I think one of the greatest failures of the church is we've made pastors synonymous with CEO. And we've created things like executive pastors who have the authority of a pastor but have never preached a sermon, nor can they teach. And they can't. They're just really good at administration. We're not a Fortune 500 company here. We're not looking for president and CEOs and CFOs. Yeah, we've got administrative stuff, but to be a pastor, you have to be able to teach. So there are different avenues of teaching. But second, there are different degrees of teaching. And here's what I mean by this. I'm not, please hear me. I think you know I'm, I'm trying to be humble. I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. I'm not. But after 12 years of doing it, I've grown some of my skills. I'm going to put them on the spot. Skills that I wouldn't expect Lance to have having been a pastor for a year and a half. Now, I'm not saying he's bad at teaching. I think he's a great teacher. But, but what we're talking about is that there could be different degrees of teaching. So if you pick your favorite online pastor, whoever that is, there's a reason they're online, right? And everybody knows who they are. And if you judge everybody by them, well, that's not going to work. There are different degrees. I would pray that as I continue to grow, that I, I think for those of you who have been here for the eight years I've been here, I hope you say, hey, man, we've seen progress in his teaching. And I hope that eight years from now, you say, man, we still see progress in this teaching. I'm not saying I'm ever going to make it, but, but it's not that they all have to be the on stage of the conference delivering it with the power that you expect all the time. That's not, that's not what, what God's looking for. He's looking for men who can faithfully open the word of God, extrapolate it in its context, understand it, and then teach it in a way that's applicable to you. And pastors will grow in that. But here, I want to point out that I think the implication goes a little deeper. When he's talking about a person who can teach, we're not only evaluating a person's ability to teach, not only their ability to speak, we're also evaluating their willingness to study. I think that this qualification implies that an elder must diligently know and study the Word of God. And perhaps this is too legalistic of me, but I don't think so. And I've said it to men here at Newbury who are considering eldership. I would argue that the man who is not daily in the Word of God is not ready nor qualified to be a pastor. I think pastors can struggle with sin. I think that if your struggle is to actually read your Bible, you're not ready to be a pastor. Because the only thing I have to offer you is the Word of God. If I'm not in the Word, all I'm going to offer you is my own thoughts, and that's going to lead us into crazy places real quick. We need, we need men who can stand and teach God's Word to God's people. I could be crafty, but I'm not clever enough to keep your soul in line. But God is. He's good enough at that. And so we want men who can teach His Word. One more thing I'll say about can teach. I think the last time I actually taught this at Newsread a few years back, I included the can teach. I think in the introduction I said all of these qualifications minus two are applicable to each member of the church. But this time around, I've actually removed this. I think the can teach should be applicable and should be strived for with every believer. I'm not saying teach sermons. And the reason that I say that is because the Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. That's not just for pastors. That's for every disciple of Jesus. And I think we should be striving, every one of us, to be able to sit down and teach the truth of the gospel to someone who needs to hear. Or to be able to teach a fellow brother and sister how the word of God applies to their hard moments, their struggle, their circumstances. So this is one I think we should all be striving for. But for the person who is going to be pastor, they have to be able to teach. They have to. Here's the, the next one. 
uh, one qualification is that a pastor has to be able to lead his family. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? And so verse 4 says, He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with dignity. Let me explain what this, what this does not mean. It does not mean that a pastor's family can't struggle. It does not mean that a pastor's family cannot wrestle with sin in their own lives. It does not mean that the children of the pastor are already fully sanctified, little Charles Spurgeons, little Lottie Millions running around ready to preach the gospel. That's not what it's talking about. But what it does mean is that the character of a man in public has to match the character of the man in private. It means that, that the pastor must love and care for his wife and be teaching the gospel to his children and striving to shepherd his children. In fact, the proving ground for faithfulness for pastors, please hear this, is not in the church. The proving ground is in the home. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 5 when he says, If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? For any pastor or anyone aspiring to be a pastor, if you want to know how you will do as a pastor, Examine how you, do, how you do as a husband and a father. Examine how you do in your friend groups with those that you have, that you have accountability with. Are you, are you speaking truth in those relationships? Are you shepherding well in those areas? Are you caring for the people that God has put in your life now? I'll say this. My wife and my daughter, I love them. They got a lot of issues to work through, just like me. And if I, my wife side-eyed me from the back room right now, so I'm not even going to look that direction. But what I'm getting, we all struggle. And if I can't shepherd the three of them, how am I going to shepherd 30? How am I going to shepherd 50? How am I going to shepherd 300? The proving ground is the home. Again, we're not saying that the, church, that the home has to be perfect. We're all in this process of sanctification. But a man who is absent in the home cannot be present in the pulpit. And so this is a challenge to pastors to remember that in their pastoral roles, they can't slip in their responsibilities at home. Being a pastor is not an excuse to stop caring for your family. Your family must come first because if they don't, most importantly, you're not honoring the Lord. But second, you're not qualified to be a pastor. I just want to say thank you to New Breed Church because one of the things that you all have done well is push all of us as pastors to make sure we're caring for our families well. Whether that means, hey, you've been running really hard. Let us take your kids, take your wife out for a day time. Like you're helping us be faithful to this. Or, hey, bring the whole family over. Let us love you. Let us just relax and create an environment where you can have fun with your kids and your spouse. Like that, that matters. And you all have done an exceptional job. So I just say thank you for that. But again, this is an interesting one because it reminds us that how we do pastors is different how the world evaluates leaders. Think about the CEO. The CEO is judged on how well he runs the company, how much profit is gained, how much success the company has. And often this will put the CEO in conflict with his family, but the organization is fine with that. They could give, they, they, they don't care at all about a, pastor or a CEO's personal life. Just produce in your role. Well, that's not the case for a pastor. Yes, we want to see pastors who are faithful in producing fruit in the pulpit, but it's not divorced from what's happening in the home. 
And unfortunately, many churches have adopted the CEO mindset. Just produce in the church, produce programs, produce physical growth, produce more campuses. As long as that happens, you're fine. But what God is communicating is that for pastors, how the family goes, so goes the church. Here's the fifth qualification. A pastor has to be a male. I mentioned there's one qualification that's not expected of every Christian. This is it. It's to be a male. Clearly, that's not a qualification for godliness because God made some of you females. However, God does require that pastors be men. And for this qualification, we actually have to, to look back a little bit at what took place immediately before Paul gives these qualifications. In 1 Timothy 2, 12, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. This echoes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. Now, let me just say this at the outset. I know this is a debated issue. I do. I know that this is a sensitive issue for some. But I believe as I read scripture that this is a requirement that God puts on pastors and elders and overseers. Now some would object, and I want to try to briefly deal with a couple of these objections. First, some would argue that Paul's writing here only applies to their cultural context. They say, yeah, yeah, Paul said that. We're not denying it. We're not denying that it's inspired by God that God wanted on the page of Scripture. But Paul's writing to, to Timothy in a particular context. Here's the problem with that argument. One, I would agree that he's writing to a context. But the problem with saying that, that this expectation that a pastor be male is no longer relevant because of the cultural context. The problem with that is Paul undoes that argument because what he grounds his argument in is not culture. He grounds it in creation. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 through 14. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So Paul's understanding of male headship in both the home and the church isn't rooted in culture. It's rooted in God's creative order. Now, the second objection, and I know we could spend a whole sermon on this, so I'm going to move through this quickly, and I expect you to call and lovingly say, but what about this? I will talk with you about it. But the second objection is some will say, well, Paul was just a product of his time. You hear this all the time. He was sexist. He was a part of a patriarchal society, and that society influenced him. Well, there are a couple of objections to this argument. First, much of Paul's teaching regarding marriage and sexuality, husbands and wives, children, most of it, if not all of it, was pushing against the sexist patriarchal society of the day. We just interpret it in our lens, but for Paul, he was being revolutionary in what he said. Think about it. Paul's in the midst of a Roman society, a society where women were seen as property, a society where a husband, a man, was expected to not only sleep with his wife, but to sleep with any servant that he wanted. It didn't matter if it was a male or a female, as long as that person was in a position of dominance. That was Roman culture. It was, it was a culture where women were not valued as individuals. They were only valued for what they could reproduce. And so Paul, throughout his writing, the thing about what he's doing, he's calling men to honor their wife. He's calling men to see wife as, as worthy of the same dignity and respect as men. He's doing something revolutionary. He's calling husbands to only have sex with their wife. Like for us, it's a sh like, yeah, even our secular culture, it's like, well, you've got to be faithful. That wasn't the case. It wasn't the case in the church. It wasn't the case in society. 
That was revolutionary. You got men reading that letter saying, he wants me to do what? Like Paul was pushing against the patriarchal society of the day. I mean, Paul includes women as inheritors of the blessing of God, the Father, which was direct, in direct contradiction to the thinking of the day. What I'm trying to get at is this, is that Paul was not opposed to women. He didn't devalue them. He wanted to honor them with the dignity and worth they deserved as image bearers. But even more, the second reason, throughout Paul's writing, Paul praises women. He's not sexist toward them. He values them. He celebrates Priscilla in Romans 16. He honors, he honors Euodias and Syntyche in Philippians 4. Even at the start of the second letter to Timothy, Paul praises Timothy's mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, by name as being faithful women used by God to shape him into the man he is today. The fact that Paul would even pin praises to women is countercultural to what they were seeing in their day and age. So no, I don't buy that he was... He had bought into the sexist patriarchy of the day. I think he saw the truth of God and wanted to apply it to society in a way that was revolutionary to the society at the time. I think it's foolish to argue that Paul was sexist, but here's the thing. I know that the idea that God would only allow men to serve in this role is hard for some to hear. I'm aware of that. But here's the thing. All of us have commands and expectations from God that are tough sometimes. And the question is not, how can we get around them? The question is, do I trust that God knows what he's doing? Is God good? And if so, can I trust that he knows what is best? But let me, let me add this before we move on. So often texts like these can be seen as defeating for women because the church has used them to demean women. And so let me just say to my sisters here, you are needed and you are valuable in the church. John Hammett, in his chapter in Theology for the Church, says it like this. He said, it may be that one reason for the drive to deny or minimize difference between males and females in contemporary culture is the tendency to see differences as involving superiority and inferiority rather than a source of mutual enrichment. In other words, a prohibition of women elders in the church is not because men are superior to women. It is because God has organized his creation to function in a certain way so that they can best serve one another through different roles and bring him the most glory possible. But I want to reiterate, passages like this, like 1 Timothy 2, have been used to silence women in the church, and that is not what God wants. It is simply saying that the role of elder and the authoritative teaching that comes with that role is reserved for men and for men alone. Just to be clear, it's not just women who are prohibited from being pastors. It's most men as well. Because there are other qualifications that they don't need. So, so the question then is, so where, sister, do you fit in? And again, I want to keep reading something that Hammett wrote that I think is helpful when he writes speaking of 1 Timothy 2.12. I know we're going long, bear with me. He says, but how does this text relate to roles in the church? It seems clear from elsewhere in scripture that this is not a blanket prohibition to women. 
For example, believers are commanded, believers are commanded to teach and to admonish one another in Colossians 3.16. Paul gives instruction concerning the praying and prophesying of women in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Context, this is important, seems to indicate that the type of teaching and authority Paul has in mind is that is that of an elder. For the qualifications for that office is the topic Paul turns to in 1 Timothy 3. And the duties of an elder include authoritative teaching and leading. Thus, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 prohibits women from functioning as elders in the local church. And I love what Hannah says. He says, beyond that, application of this verse is very difficult. For it is difficult to match Paul's understanding of teaching and exercising authority in contemporary situations. Does a female teacher of youth violate it? How about a female associate pastor, choir director, or seminary professor? These are difficult questions for which scripture gives no explicit answer. Perhaps the best approach is to consider the popular perception of the position. Is it seen as involving an authoritative position of teaching and leading men? Now, I know we can spend a lot of time there on that, so let me just say what Hammond is saying and, and offer my, my agreement. What Hammond is saying there is that the only role that is limited to men is the authoritative office of pastor. That's it. Now, I'll say this. This is not the church's stance. This is Michael's stance because we got to flesh this out more as elders, too. I don't have a problem with women teaching Sunday school class. I don't think it's an authoritative role. I don't have a problem with women facilitating community groups because I don't think it's an authoritative role. Your conscience might not allow you. That's fine. But what I see Paul getting at here in this and in other passages in 1 Corinthians is that the role of elder, the authoritative role of pastor, because it bears with it authority, we'll talk about it next week, is reserved for men and men alone. I know we can spend a lot more time there, but i got to move on. Here's the final qualification. An established believer. An established believer. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. He says he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. So Paul says here he must not be a new convert. Please hear me. This does not mean that a person cannot be young in, in physical age. It means they can't be young in spiritual age. And Paul doesn't give a specific age. I mean, 1 Timothy 4.12 says, let no one despise you for your youth. He's writing to Timothy, a guy who's about to pastor churches. He says, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. So it's not a prohibition based off your physical age, but your spiritual age. There has to be a level of maturity for the man who's going to stand and preach God's word to God's people. And Paul also communicates why we want to avoid recent converts. He says, or he might become conceited and, and incur the same condemnation as the devil. In other words, we don't want to put someone in the role that they're not ready for. But there's a connection, I think, with verse 7. Some people have seen these as two separate clauses, and I think they're connected. He says, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. The reason that I think these are linked is because a reputation of spiritual maturity takes time. Right? To be thought of. With a good reputation by those who are outside the church requires a level of spiritual maturity that develops over time. Now we do have to know this is somewhat of a tricky run. The reason it's tricky is because it says that it must have a good reputation among outsiders, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the world will speak highly of us. Nor that we would avoid persecution. Because Jesus also said that if this world hates you, it hated me first. 
And, and so there is a sense in which the, the, the world looking in shouldn't understand and respect everything that we do. In this not, that's just not me as a pastor. It's you as a Christian. We are counter-cultural. We're not conformed to the pattern of this world. But what he's getting at here is the idea is that pastors live lives that are so above reproach to the point that when the lost look in, they might not like it. They might not agree. But they see consistency. They see integrity. They see morality with people who are pastors. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Therefore, if the world speaks ill of you, the goal is that it wouldn't be because of how you live. Let me bring this to a close here. These are the qualifications for now. These are the things we ought to examine as we look for men to lead Christ in the church. And again, this is something we have to take seriously because Jesus takes the holiness of the church seriously. Remember what it cost for him to redeem the church. And the church wasn't made up of a bunch of already religious good people. It was a bunch of people like you and me who rebelled against the holy God. And we were by nature children of wrath. And yet God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross. To take our place, receive our judgment and our death. He died and raised from the dead. We can come by faith and repentance and be a part of God's family. We can be the church. Jesus loved it so much that he gave his life for it. But the last thing that I want to say is, some of you might have walked in and be like, man, I wish we had a different topic. Because I'm just struggling and I was hoping for more of a word of comfort. But let me try to give you one briefly. Thank you for your patience. qualifications of an elder remind us that God loves us. It reminds us that God did not just save you and leave you to figure out life by yourself. But he said, I'm going to establish the church and in that church I'm going to place people who will represent me to guide you, to teach you so that you can continue to see my face. And so this might not have been the most Raha, get them sermon for you. But let me encourage you that the fact that God took time to map out who the people should be that should lead his church shows that he is for you and he is not against you. He cares about you immensely and deeply. And we see it even in the nuances of the qualifications of an elder. God took the time to communicate that because he loves you and he is for you. Let me again remind you that while these things are what qualify men for eldership, minus being a male, they are all marks of the Christian life. The elder is meant to be a living example. And so all of us should strive for these things, ultimately, not to look like our pastors, but to look like Jesus. Because Jesus perfectly modeled all of his qualifications. He is the one who exemplifies them perfectly. And at the end of the day, why we care about this? Because we care about Jesus. Because he has loved us and brought us from darkness to light, from death to life. And we want to honor him and walk in faithful fellowship with him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for the attention of the saints, God. I do know that sometimes when we examine things like this, there is a tendency to not 
to not feel things as much as we might like God. We're being honest. But God, we thank you that you know what we need. You know the truth that we need to hear. You know what is for our good and for your glory. And so God, I pray for New Breed Church. I pray that as we are always evaluating how people can serve in the body, that you would give us clarity as we think through men who should lead and serve as pastors. God, I pray that you would remind us in the moments when we are in God evaluating people that these are the qualifications and we might want to add to them, but at the end of the day, those are just preferences. That it is these characteristics and these alone by which you judge the qualification of a person to serve as a pastor. And so I pray that we would too, even as we are in a season, God, considering leadership to the church and men who might serve. Lord, I pray for each and every person here that you would continue to cultivate a desire to make much of you. Whatever that desire might be, whether it is serving as a pastor or serving on hospitality or on the worship team or serving in the community, God, but in all these areas, a desire would be cultivated to bring you as much glory as possible because you are worthy and you are worth it. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.